One of the most enjoyable things about Christmas, of course, we all just celebrated Christmas a few weeks ago, is giving gifts to other people. It's true that most of us like getting gifts, but giving gifts to others is a very special experience because it stems from a heart of love as we go to great lengths to purchase just the right gifts for our loved ones, especially our children or grandchildren. Concerning the joy that goes into giving our children gifts at Christmas time, Bible teacher Chuck Swindoll said this. He said, so much thought and emotion goes into picking each gift. Imagine how hurt you would be if after picking just the right gifts, beautifully wrapping each one, placing them under the tree and giving them out on Christmas morning, they were received with indifference. How would you feel if your children simply took them without acknowledgement, without thanks, without even bothering to open them, and then casually laid them aside? Swindoll then proceeds to compare our children's lack of gratitude for the gifts given to them and how casually they lay them aside and don't even use them with the way that we as believers tend to respond to the spiritual gifts that God has given each of us. Swindoll writes this, he says, now imagine how the Lord must feel when he gives gifts to his children and they never take the trouble to find out what the gifts are, never thank him, never put them to use, shelved away, never to be shared. That's where most spiritual gifts end up. I think he's right. Most Christians are not only ignorant about the spiritual gifts that God has given them, but they don't seem to care about using those gifts to serve others. It's like it really doesn't matter. It's just sort of an option out there. But that's really nothing new because in the first century, the Corinthian church had the very same problem. They were ignorant about spiritual gifts and they weren't particularly interested in using their gifts to serve others, but only to promote themselves. And that's precisely the reason why, starting with chapter 12 of Paul's first letter to the Corinthians, the apostle begins to teach the people of this church about spiritual gifts. So if you have your Bibles here, turn to chapter 12, verse 1. Paul introduces this whole subject by saying, now concerning spiritual gifts, brethren, I don't want you to be ignorant. What he's saying is you are ignorant, I don't want you to remain ignorant. And to dispel their ignorance that apparently just permeated the entire Corinthian assembly, Paul first explains in verses 2 and 3 that their past experience in paganism is nothing at all, nothing at all like the way the Holy Spirit operates when he's using someone to exercise their spiritual gift. And so Paul said, immediately after saying, I don't want you to be ignorant about this, he said, you know that when you were pagans, you were led astray to the mute idols, however you were led. Therefore, I make known to you that no one speaking by the Spirit of God says Jesus is accursed and no one says Jesus is Lord except by the Holy Spirit. He said, your ecstatic utterances back in your paganism is nothing at all like when the Holy Spirit leads someone to use their spiritual gifts. Then the next thing Paul does in verses 4 through 7 is the apostle explains three foundational truths about spiritual gifts. Truth number one is that spiritual gifts come in a variety of forms. There is great diversity 
in spiritual gifts. Paul said at the beginning of verse 4, now there are varieties of gifts. Truth number two is that all spiritual gifts come from the same exact source, the Holy Spirit. And so verse 4 continues by saying, but the same Spirit, meaning there's variety of gifts, but they're all from the same source, the Holy Spirit. And then truth number three is that spiritual gifts are given to every believer without exception for exactly the same purpose, which is for the good of others, the common good of the church. It's to build up the church. So verse 7 says, but to each one is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. It's not for our sake that God has given us a gift. It's for the sake of others. And so having presented these three foundational truths about spiritual gifts, Paul then proceeds to illustrate the first of these truths, that spiritual gifts come in a wide variety of forms. And he does this by listing nine of these gifts in verses 8 through 10. He says, for to one is given the word of wisdom through the Spirit, and to another the word of knowledge according to the same Spirit, to another faith by the same Spirit, and to another gifts of healing by one Spirit, and to another the effecting of miracles, and to another prophecy, and to another the distinguishing of spirits, and to another various kinds of tongues, and to another the interpretation of tongues. Now last time we studied this passage, 1 Corinthians 12, we examined the first four of these nine spiritual gifts. We looked at the word of wisdom, the word of knowledge, the spiritual gift of faith, and the gifts of healing. And tonight as we continue working our way through this chapter, we're going to continue looking at the next five remaining spiritual gifts that Paul mentions here. Beginning number one, at least for us number one, it's really number five, is the gift of miracles. Chapter 12, verse 10, the beginning of verse 10 says this, and to another the affecting of miracles. Now with these words, Paul says that to some believers, not all, but to some believers, the Holy Spirit has given the spiritual gift of doing miracles. So what exactly is this gift of miracles? Well, since Paul doesn't go into any detail to elaborate on this, he doesn't go into details to explain how this or in fact how any other spiritual gift function. The only way we can understand the meaning of this spiritual gift is by defining the words that Paul uses to express this gift and then seeing how the rest of the New Testament helps us to understand this gift. So first of all, in coming to an understanding of what the gift of miracles is, we need to see that this gift is different from the gift gift of healing. And I say that because Paul himself makes this distinction. I remind you that in the previous verse, Paul spoke of the gifts of healing, which was the ability that was given to the apostles to supernaturally heal those who were ill and diseased. But now in speaking of the gift of miracles, Paul's making a distinction. There are two different gifts. Paul is telling us that this gift is different from the gift of healings because while it's true that healing someone was miraculous it was very focused it was limited to the human body the physical body restoring someone's physical well-being however the gift of miracles is more expansive than the gift of healing the body so that it involves a broad range of miracles often dealing with nature so then 
What exactly, let's just back up and say, what exactly is a miracle? Now, you may think that that's an unnecessary question to ask because everybody knows what a miracle is. No, I don't agree because that isn't the case. And I say this because I often hear people attributing something to be miraculous, such as a very, very unique and special answer to prayer, and they'll say that, it, well, that's, that's a miracle, when it's not a miracle, but rather it's something remarkable, something unusual, but not a miracle. In fact, I just read about a fisherman off of the coast of New Zealand who survived 24 hours in the water. And he referred to this as a miracle. Now, this was extraordinary, and I'm glad he survived, and I'm glad he could speak about it now, but it wasn't a miracle. You see, a miracle is something far beyond the unusual or remarkable or even the extraordinary. Even a a great answer to prayer, that's not a miracle. A miracle, by definition is a supernatural act of God in which he overrules the very laws of nature that he himself has established. In other words, with a miracle, God temporarily intervenes into the normal forces of nature to do something that's contrary to nature. So, for example, if I were to throw a ball up in the air and it never came down, that would be a miracle because it would defy the law of gravity. That would be miraculous. And there's really no better way to understand what a miracle is than by looking at the supernatural miraculous works that our Lord did during his earthly ministry. For example, he changed water into wine. That was his first miracle. That was done at the wedding in Cana of Galilee. That was a miracle. That was something contrary to nature. The Lord calmed the storm on the Sea of Galilee by just rebuking the winds and the waves. That's a miracle. It goes contrary to nature. He did a miracle when he fed over 5,000 people with just five loaves of bread and two fish. They just kept multiplying. That's miraculous. He walked on water. That's a miracle. All these are miracles. And they're miracles because they were contrary to the laws of nature. And what Paul is teaching here in 1 Corinthians 12 is that one of the spiritual gifts that the Holy Spirit bestows upon believers is this supernatural ability to perform miraculous acts that go against the normal rules of nature. So what kind of miracles are we talking about? Well, if you were to look at the New Testament, you would see that the Lord's apostles were able to do certain miracles besides healings. For example, Paul did the miraculous when on his first missionary journey, he smote the magician by the name of Elimus with blindness because he opposed the gospel. It's found in Acts 13 verse 11. He just smote this man with blindness. That is miraculous. Prior to that, the apostle Peter did the miraculous in bringing about the sudden deaths of Ananias and Sapphira because they lied to God. Acts chapter 5. In addition, the apostles were all given the ability by Jesus to cast out demons when he sent them out on their first missionary journey. Luke chapter 9. So these were the kinds of miracles, folks, that we read about in the New Testament. But there's something very important to understand about miracles, and especially this gift of miracles. The New Testament makes it abundantly clear that God performed miracles, whether it be by Jesus 
or by the apostles, note this, for the specific purpose of attesting to the fact that Jesus was the divine Messiah and as a result, the miraculous helped others to believe in him. That's critically important to understand that these miracles all testified, all pointed to Christ and affirmed Christ as being the divine Messiah and they helped people to understand who he was so they would place their trust in him. For example, in John chapter 2, where we read that Jesus turned the water into wine. Why did he do that? What was the result of this? What was the purpose of this? Well, verse 11 of John chapter 2 says this, the beginning of his signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory, and then it says, and his disciples believed in him. He did it for the sake of his disciples. He didn't do it just to make the party a little more interesting. He did it so that his apostles, his disciples, would look and realize that he is somebody out of the ordinary. Towards the end of the Gospel of John, we read these very revealing words in John chapter 20, verses 30 and 31. John said, therefore, many other signs Jesus also performed in the presence of the disciples, which are not written in this book. So what he's telling us is that he selected under the inspiration of the Spirit of God certain miracles that Jesus did, but there were many more miracles that Jesus did that John did not include in his gospel account. But John says, but these have been written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that believing you may have life in his name. So John the Apostle wrote the Gospel of John to help people who would read the Gospel of John see these miracles that Jesus did and come to believe in him for only the divine Messiah could do these miracles. And in the case of the apostles, the purpose of their miracles was to authenticate them as the Lord's spokesmen, as his official representatives, so that people would believe their message about Jesus. So here's what we read in Hebrews chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. How will we escape if we neglect so great a salvation? After it was at the first spoken through the Lord, it was confirmed to us by those who heard. He's referring now to the apostles. Those are the ones who heard Jesus speak. God also testifying about them, again the apostles, both by signs and wonders and by various miracles and by gifts of the Holy Spirit according to his will. What he's saying is that these signs, these wonders were God's confirmation, were God's testimony that the message that these men, the apostles, preached was his message and that they were his spokesmen. Again, we read in 2 Corinthians 12, 12, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you with all perseverance by signs and wonders and miracles. So now Paul says that the miracles that the apostles did were limited to the apostles. They were signs that these men were apostles because they authenticated them and only them. If every believer could do these miracles, then this verse makes no sense. The signs of a true apostle were performed by the miraculous. If everybody could do this, then there wouldn't be any sign to indicate who's a true apostle and who isn't. So this gift 
of miracles was only for the apostles. So what this means then is that the gift of miracles, like the gift of healing, was a temporary gift since its purpose was to confirm who a true apostle was. But with the passing away of the apostles towards the end of the first century with the death of John, there simply was no longer a need for this gift, and therefore the Holy Spirit ceased giving it. Theologian Benjamin Warfield explained it this way. He said, these miraculous gifts were part of the credentials of the apostles as authoritative agents of God in founding the church. Their function confined them distinctly to the apostolic church, and they necessarily passed away with it. Now, this certainly doesn't mean that God no longer does any miracles today. It doesn't mean that at all. There is never any limits to which God is placed by us. We don't put limits on God. God is never limited as to what he can or will do. He is sovereign. He does whatever he chooses to do, and that includes miracles. However, while he still does miracles, what the New Testament teaches is that he is no longer giving anyone the gift of doing miracles. If a miracle is to be done today, he does it apart from any of us. So moving on, moving on then to another spiritual gift that Paul lists in 1 Corinthians 12, he speaks of the gift of prophecy. The gift of prophecy. The next phrase in verse 10 says, and to another, prophecy. Now normally when we hear the word prophecy, We think of future events. We think of events that are predicted. They're prophetic in the sense that they're telling us things that are going to happen in the future. However, the Greek word for prophecy doesn't necessarily mean that. It simply means to speak forth. The word means to proclaim. This gift of prophecy then is the ability that God gives to some to speak forth his word effectively and clearly. In other words, it's the gift of preaching. That's what we would call it today, the gift of preaching, the gift of proclaiming. Now, in the early days of the church, God gave certain men to speak forth new revelation, inspired truths, but with the completion of the New Testament, revelation ceased. And we know that revelation ceased. We know that God is not giving new revelation today because of a statement, a verse that Jude in his little letter, right at the end of the New Testament, just before the book of Revelation, the statement he makes, he says this, Beloved, while I was making every effort to write you about our common salvation, I felt the necessity to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly, now watch this, for the faith, not personal faith, but the faith, the body of truth, The faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. Folks, what Jude is saying is that we have the faith. We have the body of revelation. We have the New Testament writings. God is not giving us ongoing new revelation. It is the faith which was once and for all handed down to the saints. We as the saints, we have it. We've got it. However, just because God stopped giving new revelation doesn't necessarily mean that he stopped giving some believers the gift of prophecy. You see, while those who have this gift now, they don't proclaim new revelation because God's not giving new revelation. They do, though, proclaim what he's already revealed 
in the scriptures. In other words, they proclaim the written word of God. They preach the Bible. Now, the gift of prophecy, I want you to understand, it is an extremely important spiritual gift since churches always need to hear God's word proclaimed. They need to hear it proclaimed accurately and clearly. In fact, Paul devotes the entire 14th chapter of 1 Corinthians to explaining why the gift of prophecy is so important. Notice what he tells the Corinthians in chapter 14, verse 1, and he essentially repeats the same thought at the end of the chapter in verse 39. He said in verse 1, pursue love yet desire earnestly spiritual gifts, but especially that you may prophesy. And then verse 39 says, therefore my brethren desire earnestly to prophesy. Now understand this, in urging the Corinthians to desire that they may prophesy, Paul isn't telling them that as individuals they ought to seek this gift because this would contradict what Paul has said about spiritual gifts being distributed already when we were converted. That, that the Spirit of God has distributed these gifts already sovereignly. None of us can seek a spiritual gift in the sense that we are to pray and ask God to give us a particular gift because he's already done that. He's already given you your gifts when he converted you. So then what does Paul mean when he writes desire earnestly to prophesy? Listen closely. Paul is telling them that as a church body, not individuals, but as a church body, the Corinthians should desire that the gift of prophecy be used amongst them. In other words, he's telling them that they should want they should want this gift to be exercised in their church meetings by those who have been endowed with the gift of prophecy or preaching because this is the way that God speaks to his church. He speaks through his word. Now what that says to us here then at Lakeside is that as a church body, we need to desire preaching. We need to make sure we never grow tired of preaching. We need to make sure we don't complain about who's in the pulpit and who's not in the pulpit as long as preaching the word is going on. Preaching is to be, for our church, it's to be our priority. It's to be the focus, the primary focus of our ministry. It's to be the primary thing that we do when we gather on Sundays, regardless of who's in the pulpit, myself or one of the other elders. There is simply nothing more important that we do as a church at Lakeside than preaching the word of God and hearing it proclaimed because this is how God communicates his mind, his will to us. And out of the kindness of his heart, God has blessed our church with an abundance of individuals who have been given this gift of prophecy or preaching so that you are indeed a blessed congregation. In fact, I have rarely known a local church that has so many men that we do at Lakeside who have been supernaturally gifted to be able to stand in this pulpit and proclaim the word of God to you. It is a unique, unique time and we are a unique church in that sense. Now so far then we've seen the gift of miracles, the gift of prophecy, and now as Paul continues he mentions another spiritual gift. He speaks of the gift of distinguishing spirits. He goes on in verse 10 to say, and to another, the distinguishing of spirits. Now, this spiritual gift is essentially the God-given ability to detect a false 
teacher and the evil spirit behind his false teaching. The word distinguishing means to judge between things. It means to discern. It means to perceive. It means to determine. So this is really the gift of discernment. And what someone with this gift discerns is if an individual giving a message is from God or if he's from and his message from the evil one, from Satan himself. In other words, the gift of distinguishing spirits is the supernatural ability that God gives some Christians to be able to determine who is a false teacher and who is a true teacher. It would also seem to include the ability to discern what statements are false and unbiblical, even if they come from an otherwise good, sound Bible teacher. And the reason that this gift is so important is simply because Satan is a liar and he's a deceiver. In fact, Jesus referred to him, as you'll recall in John chapter 8, as the father of lies, meaning what? Meaning that Satan is the source of, of lies. All lying originated with him. There was no lying prior to him. He's a liar, he's a murderer, and he spreads his lies through a host of spirits known as demons, fallen angels, who propagate error and false doctrine. Paul said these words to Timothy, 1 Timothy 4.1, but the spirit explicitly says that in latter times, some will fall away from the faith, paying attention to, note this, deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons deceitful spirits and doctrines of demons. Now, all believers in Christ are to be discerning. If you're a Christian, you are to be discerning. We should all be able to determine, to some degree at least, who is a false teacher and who isn't. You don't need the spiritual gift of discernment to be able to discern this. That's because we have the Word of God to evaluate an individual's teaching. You don't even need this gift. I'll explain where the gift comes in. But all of us should be able, if you hear somebody, to know that's not right or that is right. And you should know this because you have the Word of God to evaluate a teacher. Paul wrote this to the Ephesians chapter 4, starting in verse 11. He said, and he, meaning Christ, he gave some as apostles, some as prophets, and some as evangelists, some as pastors and teachers for the equipping of the saints for the work of service to the building up of the body of Christ. So he's given these gifted men to teach you the word, Paul said, until we all attain to the unity of the faith and of the knowledge of the Son of God to a mature man to the measure of the stature which belongs to the fullness of Christ. So this is an ongoing process. Teaching is ongoing as we are maturing and maturing and maturing. Verse 14 says, As a result, we are no longer to be children tossed here and there by waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by the trickery of men, by craftiness and deceitful scheming. As you sit under the Word of God, as you read your Bibles at home, as you study the Word, as you listen to good men on, on the radio teach the Word, you should be gaining discernment so that when a false teacher arises, you say, no, that's wrong. I know it's wrong because I know this doesn't square up with this. So every Christian has the ability to discern what is biblical and what's not simply by studying your Bible and knowing what it says. As I said, you don't need to have the spiritual gift of discernment to be discerning. All you need to do is exactly what the Bereans did 
when in Acts chapter 17, verse 11, we read about them hearing the apostle Paul when he came to their town, and what did they do? They examined the scriptures daily to see whether these things were so. In other words, they searched the scriptures to see if what Paul said to them was based on scripture or not. Was it his opinion, or was this really what scripture said? That's exactly what you can do and you must do every time you hear someone who claims to be speaking for God. See if what they say lines up with scripture. But the gift of discernment, the gift of distinguishing spirits, goes far beyond the normal experience of being discerning. And the reason for this is because false teachers are not always easy to detect. They are subtle at times and they are very deceptive because they often use biblical language, biblical terminology, and they tend to mix in just enough truth with error to confuse you. Notice what Paul said about men in his day that he referred to as false apostles. He wrote in 2 Corinthians 11, 13 through 15, he said this, For such men are false apostles, deceitful workers, disguising themselves, note that, disguising themselves as apostles of Christ. No wonder, for even Satan disguises himself as an angel of light. Therefore, it's not surprising if his servants also disguise themselves as servants of righteousness, whose end will be according to their deeds. So, because some false teachers are not always obvious, since they disguise themselves so well, the average Christian just has a hard time detecting some of them, and that's where we need those with the gift of distinguishing spirits to help the church. They help the church by detecting these false teachers, by exposing these false teachers for what they are, servants of Satan. Concerning the need in the church for those with this gift, John MacArthur wrote this. He said, those to whom God has given the gift of discernment have a special ability to recognize lying spirits. And this gift is the spirit's watchdog. Some ideas that are given as scriptural and that on the surface seem scriptural actually are clever counterfeits that would deceive most believers. Those with the gift of discernment are the Holy Spirit's inspectors his counterfeit experts to whom he gives special insight and understanding. The gift was especially valuable in the early church because the New Testament had not been completed. Because of the difficulty and expense of copying, for many years after its completion, the Bible was not widely available. The Holy Spirit's discerners were the church's protectors. I believe God, he said, still empowers some of his people to unmask false prophets and carnal hypocrites. He gives them insight to expose imitations and deceptions that most Christians would take as genuine. So that's, that's why we need those who have the gift of discernment. Now, if you happen to have this gift, and I've known some people who I think have this gift, then the only caution I would offer you is to say, be careful, be careful that you don't allow this gift to make you harsh and overly critical and even self-righteous those who expose error must be humble and gracious while at the same time being bold and strong. Paul told Timothy how to deal with false teachers in a very gracious manner 
when he wrote these words to young Timothy in 2 Timothy 2, 24 and 25. He said, the Lord's bondservant must not be quarrelsome, but be kind to all, able to teach, patient when wronged, with gentleness correcting those who are in opposition, if perhaps God may grant them repentance leading to the knowledge of the truth. So, a word of caution if you have this gift. I've, I've known people who have had this gift and sometimes they cross the line and are very critical and very harsh, so be careful. Now, so far we've looked at three spiritual gifts tonight. The gift of miracles, the gift of prophecy, and the gift of distinguishing spirits or the gift of discernment. And now, as Paul continues, we come to the fourth spiritual gift and the one that is the most controversial gift in our day, and that is the gift of speaking in tongues. Verse 10 goes on to say, and to another, various kinds of tongues. Now, before we even consider what the apostle means by the gift of tongues, I want you to think about something important in order to put things in perspective. In our day, speaking in tongues has been and continues to be a major issue of controversy with many churches and many individuals giving this particular gift great prominence In fact, in some circles, every Christian is encouraged to speak in tongues. And if they don't speak in tongues, then they are made to feel as if there's something wrong in their Christian lives, something wrong in their Christian experience. They're made to feel as if they are second-rate, second-class Christians because they are lacking some key spiritual element in their lives. Or perhaps they're not even a Christian in the first place. In other words, speaking in tongues then becomes the mark of being either a spirit-filled Christian or in some cases, just a Christian. That's where we are today with some in the charismatic movement. Now, even if you didn't know what speaking in tongues meant or, or if it was even a valid gift for today, you could still know that it can't be as important of a gift as many make it out to be. And how would you know this? Well, you would know this simply by doing a little thinking and by probing to see that the New Testament does not give the gift of tongues the kind of prominence that those in charismatic circles give it. Consider these facts. None of the New Testament gospel accounts of the life and ministry of Jesus mention tongues with the exception being one brief line at the end of the Gospel of Mark, Mark chapter 16, verse 17, that most scholars believe wasn't even a part of the original inspired Greek text. They believe it was added later. So, all four Gospel accounts, there's no mention of the gift of tongues. Secondly, the gift of tongues is only mentioned three times in the book of Acts. Three times, that's all. In Acts 2, when the Holy Spirit came upon the church on the day of Pentecost. In Acts chapter 10, verse 46, when the apostle Peter introduced the gospel to the Gentiles in the home of Cornelius. And in Acts 19, verse 6, at the time Paul founded the church at Ephesus. Apart from these three times in the book of Acts, tongues isn't mentioned any other place in the New Testament apart from what we read here in 1 Corinthians chapter 12 and then 14. Think about this. None of the other New Testament letters mention tongues. None of them. 
which shows us that the early church just did not place that much emphasis on this spiritual gift. So it is absolutely wrong, it is absolutely unbiblical, it is absolutely sinful to be obsessed with the gift of tongues. The early church wasn't. Maybe the Corinthians were, but nobody else was. And that ought to tell you something anyway, because they were quite a carnal bunch. So then what is the gift of tongues? What is it? Well, you could actually translate it the gift of languages. Because simply put, the biblical spiritual gift of tongues is the supernatural ability to speak in a human language, a foreign language previously unknown to the speaker. It certainly isn't incoherent words or gibberish or ecstatic utterances or unintelligible sounds. And we know that this is the case, that there were languages, human languages, because when the Holy Spirit came upon the believers on the day of Pentecost in Acts 2, they spoke in human languages that though foreign to them were understood by those from that particular foreign country. Here's what we read, Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 11. When the day of Pentecost had come, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a noise like a violent rushing wind, and it filled the whole house where they were sitting. And there appeared to them tongues as of fire distributing themselves, and they rested on each one of them. And they were all filled with the Holy Spirit, and they began to speak with other tongues as the Spirit was giving them utterance. Now there were Jews living in Jerusalem, devout men from every nation under heaven. And when this sound occurred, the crowd came together and were bewildered because each one of them was hearing them speak in his own language. They were amazed and astonished, saying, are not all these who are speaking Galileans? In other words, they don't know these languages. They're from Galilee, and yet they're speaking our language. And how is it that we each hear them in our own language in which we were born? Parthians and Medes and Elamites and residents of Mesopotamia, Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phrygia and Pamphylia, Egypt, and the districts of Libya around Cyrene and visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs, we hear them in our own tongues speaking of the mighty deeds of God. What Luke is telling us in the book of Acts is that the people who were visiting Jerusalem, they were visiting them because of the day of Pentecost, because of that feast, They came from all these various countries, nations, districts. They said that they heard the believers speaking about the mighty deeds of God in their own languages, their own native tongues, meaning their own unique language, unique to their country. This is why the people, as I said, they were astonished because they acknowledged in verse 7 that all who are speaking were Galileans. All they knew were Hebrew for the most part, some perhaps knew Greek, But all they knew was the language Hebrew. Well, I should say they did know Greek, but they certainly didn't know these other languages, and they spoke in the Galilean dialect, and yet here they were speaking in foreign languages previously unknown to them. And folks, that's exactly what the gift of tongues was. It was a God-given ability to speak in a foreign language previously unknown and previously unstudied. These individuals didn't go to school to study this language. And as we'll see when we get to 1 Corinthians 14, 
The purpose of this gift was that it functioned as a sign to unbelievers to announce that judgment was coming upon the nation of Israel without going into the details of the verse at this time, these two verses. I want to just give you a taste of it. 1 Corinthians 14, 21 and 22. It is the only place in the New Testament that specifically states the purpose of tongues. Paul said in the law, it's written by men of strange tongues, meaning strange languages, languages the Jewish people hadn't heard before. And by the lips of strangers, I will speak to this people, and even so they will not listen to me. Paul goes back to the Old Testament, speaking of the Babylonian captivity that was coming. And you're going to hear, he tells the Jewish people back in the Old Testament, you're going to hear people speak in strange tongues that you won't understand. And then Paul says, so then, verse 22, tongues are for a sign. There were a sign back in the Old Testament of judgment coming, and they're a sign now. For a sign not to those who believe, but to unbelievers. Paul says that tongues is a sign to unbelieving Jewish people that judgment was coming to Israel. He bases it on what God did in the Old Testament. When you hear the men speak of the Babylonian tongue, you'll know that judgment has come. When you hear people speak in other foreign languages, know that judgment is coming, and it did come. Judgment upon Israel came in 70 AD when the Romans, led by General Titus, swept in and destroyed the city of Jerusalem, destroyed the temple, and scattered the Jewish people from the Holy Land. They were scattered for over 2,000 years until they came together in the 1940s and the state of Israel was reborn. And that's exactly why this particular gift, this gift of tongues, it doesn't exist today. It's not that God can give this gift. It's simply that he isn't giving it to anyone because there's no need to give it to anyone since it has already served its purpose. It was a sign that pointed Jewish people to the fact that judgment was coming to the nation of Israel. Once that judgment came, there's no need for a sign. It served its purpose. Tongues then has ceased because it serves no purpose. It has served its purpose. Now the next and last spiritual gift that Paul mentions is related to the gift of tongues. It is the gift of interpreting tongues. The end of verse 10 says, and to another, the interpretation of tongues. Well, there's nothing complicated about this spiritual gift. It simply was the God-given ability to translate what someone with the gift of tongues was saying to those who didn't know the language of the tongue speaker. That's all it was. And like speaking in tongues, the gift of interpreting tongues was temporary, no longer being given by God because there's no longer a need for this gift. And so having listed these nine spiritual gifts in order to show the variety and the diversity of spiritual gifts, Paul closes this section by affirming that although there is diversity, great diversity in these gifts, they all come from the Holy Spirit, and he energizes everyone who uses their gift. Verse 11, but one and the same Spirit works all these things, distributing to each one individually just as he wills. This is a summary statement. It's a summation of what Paul has been teaching, that although we do have differing gifts, and he just gave a sample of these gifts, there are more gifts, but 
Although we have differing gifts, they all come from the same Holy Spirit who not only gives us our gifts, but who energizes us when we use our gifts. And without exception, he has distributed these gifts to each of us just as he sovereignly wills. So what can we take away from our study tonight? How can we apply these truths to our lives? Well, for one thing, we should affirm the truth that each of us does have, if you're a believer, you do have a combination of spiritual gifts that God has given you to use, not to put away, to use. If you're not using your spiritual gift, you are being disobedient. Secondly, we should be clear in our minds that there must be no competition, no rivalry as to which gift is more important than another gift. Paul says that the Holy Spirit is the one who chose to distribute your particular gifts, whatever they may be. So be content with whatever gift or gifts God has given you and don't covet someone else's gift. That was the problem with the Corinthians. The Lord knows what he's doing, so trust him and be faithful in using your gift to serve others. Third, you should, you should be settled in your mind that speaking in tongues, it's not an option for today. You don't need to be confused about this. Though many give this gift great prominence, the early church didn't. They didn't give it prominence apart from the Corinthians. And as I said, they were a carnal church and the apostles didn't give it prominence. The gift doesn't even exist today, so don't let others confuse you about it. And fourth, as a church body, we need to make sure that we do desire, all of us should desire the gift of prophecy or the gift of preaching or the gift of proclaiming to be the major focus of our church. This is one gift that God says a local church should desire, so we must make sure that we desire it, never grow tired of preaching. And finally, if you don't know the Lord, then the only gift that you need to be concerned about is the gift of eternal life, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of eternal life is through Christ Jesus, our Lord. The gift is eternal life, and Jesus offers to all who will repent of their sin and trust him as Savior and Lord, if you do that, he will give you the gift of eternal life. I urge you to do that if you've never done this before. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for these enlightening two verses. They are packed full of information. And Lord, I know there's been a lot that's been taught tonight. I pray that you'll help each one to not be overloaded with information, but to understand these gifts and to not be confused, especially about tongues. And I pray, Lord, that you'll help us to use our gifts to be faithful, to be thankful to you, never to lay these gifts aside like some do at Christmas time and never use them, but to use them faithfully for your glory and honor. We ask that those who may not know you be drawn to yourself, that they may receive the gift of eternal life. This we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.